if you're just casually getting ultrasounds week by week in late pregnancy, you are very likely to be told at one of those ultrasounds that you need to be induced for one of these reasons. And they're they're not linked to safer outcomes. They are doing an intervention that has no benefit and they're saying it's necessary and has potential downside. I mean, anything that they say you have to do and there's no clear benefit is concerning. They're doing it just to put a number in the chart. It's just data for them. <laughs> Doesn't mean much. Usually it's much earlier than a first time mom will even go into labor. So most of us have that anxiety that we see that due date come and go and we start to worry and we're more susceptible to unnecessary intervention because of that concern. I'm Cynthia Overgaard, owner of Hypnobirthing of Connecticut, childbirth advocate, and postpartum support specialist. And I'm Trisha Ludwig, certified nurse midwife and international board certified lactation consultant. And this is the Down to Birth podcast. Childbirth is something we're made to do. But how do we have our safest and most satisfying experience in today's medical culture? Let's dispel the myths and get down to birth. Trisha, remember when we started this, uh, we started this list, we were like, they're all falling into the third trimester. That's right. Remember that? We're finally here with the big, the big topics of the third trimester. It felt like the juiciest things come in the third trimester. So we have a lot to say today. Yeah. But we're, like, lo and behold, we did have a lot come up in the first and second after all. I mean, they are, red flags are always, the good thing about red flags is they're always, they're always, they're always showing up. They don't have to show up just when you walk through the doors of the hospital. They can um, kind of be there for the taking, really. Yes. That, that's a good thing. And the, as we said in the earlier episodes, the sooner you see them and start becoming aware of them, the better off you're going to be because you'll have more time to make changes. That is for sure. So let's start off with the first one. Red flag if your provider wants to give you routine vaginal exams in late pregnancy. But Trisha, why don't we start off? Why don't you tell us why a provider would ever want to do a vaginal exam in late pregnancy? What are good reasons for it? I don't know. <laughs> you really don't have it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it. I mean, I think that makes sense. Yeah. They're, you know, okay. Around 37 weeks, it used to be that when you would get the GBS test at 37 weeks, that your provider would do a vaginal exam and do the GBS test for you. And at 37 weeks, they might give you information about your cervix. Oh, it's soft. Oh, it's a little bit open. Oh, I feel your baby's head. It means nothing. Now, I think that many people are doing their own GBS tests when they go to the bathroom, or maybe providers are still doing them in some cases, but you don't they need the vaginal are. exam. They definitely are. Okay. Um, so it depends on where you practice. In home birth practice, it's not usually that case. the case. We'll usually tell the woman to take the swab into the bathroom and do her own exam. So there's no reason to put your hands in her vagina. But if you're doing the GBS test yourself, you might as well just get in there and have a look at the cervix and see what's happening. Um, but I think GBS tests aside, there are still some practitioners who want to put their hands inside of a woman at an, I mean, they'll say like, oh, do you want us to just check and see what we find out? And it's not uncommon for a woman in late pregnancy to leave her prenatal and say, oh, I'm 90% effaced and I'm one center centimeter dilated. Well, so someone was in there to get that information. Right. So I guess what I'm saying is without at your 38 or 39 week appointment, without having that 
already having your bottoms off for the GBS test, then it's a little bit more effort to get the vaginal exam. It's like, oh, do you want to have your cervix checked? You actually have to ask the question as opposed to at 37 weeks, you're already on the table undressed because you're having this exam, you're having the swab done. So it's a lot easier to just check your cervix at that point. But at 38 or 39 weeks, if they say, do you want me to check your cervix? The answer should probably be no, because it doesn't tell you anything useful. And if they say we need, if when you go into the room, um, they say, take your bottoms off so you can have your vaginal exam, because this is just what we do at 38 or 39 weeks, that should make you question things and say, for what, for what purpose, what is that going to tell you? Even if you're three centimeters dilated, doesn't mean much. You could be three centimeters dilated for weeks. That happened to me. Do you know that? Um, yeah, maybe. maybe. Yeah, I was like two centimeters at my 40 week. And then I went to work. No, no, I was two centimeters at my. Yeah, it was my it was a week before I was supposed to go home, which was at 38. Anyway, they threw an emergency shower because we thought the baby was coming. And a few weeks later, like on my 40th week, they checked me. I was <laughs> four centimeters. Emergency shower. <laughs> yeah, I'm not kidding. Had to get it in. <laughs> well, you know, corporate America can't have the baby that without that. They're like, she's leaving earlier than we thought. Everyone like they all canceled meetings and surprised me later in the afternoon. And I went home under these urgent conditions because I was led to believe because someone was up in there checking that the baby might be coming any day, any hour. And then there I was three weeks later with people from work texting like, did you have the baby yet? Or are you just hanging out at home at this point? Like I'm still three centimeters. I, you do wonder why I had that information. It didn't serve me very well. Um, and it definitely put everyone on alarm. Like I could have the baby any minute, but the point is and the way I like to sum this up is what Nancy Weiner says. And what she said to me years ago, I said, why should we not do vaginal exams in late pregnancy? But what's the reason, you know, I'm looking for like risk of infection or, you know, could rupture the membranes. And she simply said what I've said already before on this podcast, because in childbirth, everything is meant to go down and out and nothing is meant to go up and in. And even though that's not the data that we like to find and look for, who can dispute that? Who can disagree with that? Vaginal exams occasionally have their place, but routine. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about when they have their place. When do they? So vaginal exams definitely can have their place in labor, but there are very few, if any, reasons to have a vaginal exam in pregnancy. I do understand why women sometimes want to have them. It feels right. like some sort of um, marker. Bring the data. <laughs> yeah, no, bring like, the data. It's like, you know, you get excited about all these little bits of information. You get your fundal height, the baby's heart rate, as if the baby's heart rate number matters either. It doesn't matter that much as long as the heart beat is normal and it's beating. We're good. Um, but you know, we get kind of attached to these little details about the progress of our baby and our body. So I get why women want to know, but you just really have to think about what it's going to do for you. Is it going to serve you? Is it going to make you feel anxious or is it going to make you feel nothing different? You have to know yourself. If, and if you're fine with the day, if you're fine with whatever it is, and it's not going to change the way you anticipate labor or not, then fine. So let me ask you this. Why is it a red flag if they want to do routine vaginal exams in pregnancy? Because if they say they need to do routine vaginal exams, they are doing an intervention that has no benefit and they're saying it's necessary. 
So that's a red flag. Anything that they say that is necessary, but has no beneficial side and has potential downside. I mean, there is a potential downside that they could accidentally break the bag of water. That's a red flag, right? I mean, anything that they say you have to do and there's no clear benefit is concerning. They're doing it just to put a number in the chart. You know, cervix, zero centimeters, 0% effaced, long, thick, and closed. It's just data for them. (laughs) Doesn't mean much. Not to mention they can be uncomfortable. And a lot of women really, really don't like to have those exams. So it should certainly be a choice. If you're planning an induction, that is one reason to have a vaginal exam because it's important to know where your cervix is to determine the course of induction, the method of induction that you're going to go with. So that's probably why a lot of people have them. All right. Let's go to the next one. Speculations around having a big baby, major red flag, the number one reason. What are you laughing at? We've been talking about big babies so much lately. <laughs> it just keeps coming up. <laughs> and it forever will because it, it's it's a totally pervasive issue. It just, it, it does come up all the time and there is so much misinformation around it. All right. So let's start with what is the fear around a big baby? Why is everybody so afraid of a big baby? I can answer that. I'm raising my hand. Good. Go. You. Because women typically start off fearing childbirth to begin with. So the concept of birthing anything is frightening and the bigger, the more frightening. So I mean, in in our minds, yes, I think it's that simple. Yeah. I mean, they don't understand that it has to do with positioning and that the fatty part of the baby is squishy. No, it's just the notion of something bigger and all the the bad comedian jokes out there about giving birth to like a bowling ball or a watermelon, like, like, no, that would kill someone. No, you're not meant to give birth to anything like that. Um, you're meant to birth a head that will require effort, very much effort in most cases, typically birthing the rest of the baby is far easier. So why are providers afraid of big babies? Because when I see fear around big babies, I think much more from the provider perspective than the mom's perspective. I don't think they're afraid. I think they love feeding the misinformation and the fear. Well, why it's are like, they, oh, why? look, the baby's looking big. All right, cool. Let's book a C-section. That's that's usually how it looks. I don't know. If, if they were so concerned, they would do a little education on fetal positioning. And surely they've had that opportunity. I just think it's, I feel like it's their opportunity to induce or to perform a C-section. Oh, if yeah, that's, if that, they're so inclined, if they're, if they're the kind of provider who's so inclined. That is probably true. I do think that there is some, there is definitely provider fear around shoulder dystocia. It is one of the biggest concerns. So I would say that providers are in fact afraid somewhat of big babies because of the risk of shoulder dystocia. So this is where, you know, there's a relation between size of baby and shoulder dystocia. And we've been talking about this a lot as well, but shoulder dystocia is probably the, is one of the scariest things as a birth provider to come across in labor. And if a baby is bigger, the chance of shoulder dystocia is in their mind higher. So there is a connection between the two, but the data actually shows that almost half of shoulder dystocias occur in babies that are not technically big babies. So it's, it is misinformation. That's when you think about that, about half are on each side, right? Wasn't it 48 to 52% or something like that? So in one study, 48% of babies less than 44,000 grams still had shoulder dystocia. So it's interesting because when you look at all the cases of shoulder dystocia, half were big babies, half were not big babies. 
I mean, it's so an interesting So what split. does that tell you? <laughs> very little. It tells you- Or it tells you that it's not correlated very well with yes. size. Now, what is correlated is big babies as a result of gestational or diabetes in pregnancy. That Those babies have a fourfold risk of, of shoulder dystocia, but you can't translate that. So what gets ha- what happens is that gets translated to every woman who has a big baby, that she has a big baby because she has some sort of- undiagnosed gestational diabetes, or it just kind of gets all lumped together. Can we just um, make sense of what you just said? Because I think it's worth explaining that. um, And I've heard you say this. So if I'm not remembering right, you have to correct me here. But didn't you say that the reason that there's a greater link or correlation with gestational diabetes is that those, because of whatever glucose issue is going on, those babies will have extra fatty deposits around their shoulders. And that's why it's could potentially be harder for them to be born, or that's why it's more prevalent. So what, yes. So what happens is that in a big baby overall, just a genetically big baby, baby over 4,000 or 4,500 grams, that's the technical definition of a big baby. You have proportional head and shoulder size and the head paves the way for the shoulders. So if the shoulders are in proportion to that overall size of the the body and the baby and the head is large, that opens, that creates the space for the rest of the body to be born. If you have an abnormal proportions, smaller head, larger shoulders, which can happen in babies of diabetic mothers, that's where you can have a little bit more of a problem because the head isn't creating that space first. There's so many ironies in all of this. And one irony that I'm picking up from your explanation is you kind of want the baby with a bigger head then. Yes. <laughs> but that's normally a terrifying concept to women. Isn't that, that is funny? It. That is exactly that, right. That paves the way toward a safer birth. That's exactly right. Mm. But then again, we have these small babies. You can have you can have a six pounder that has shoulder dystocia. Right. So that's a more about maternal and fetal positioning and just Mm -hmm. the baby not making the correct maneuvers to fit through properly. Mm -hmm. You know, if you really break it down, it does not so scary. I mean, I think, I think when we get into that territory of overanalyzing and for the woman who's pregnant and listening, like, but how do I know if I'm having, how do I know my baby's head size? How do I know that proportion? We have to remind ourselves that every mammal is giving birth very easily in part because they don't know. So there is, you know, there, there does have to be such a degree of trust in your body and in your baby and in your provider. And you have to find your place where you can surrender because we can all get really hooked on trying to get as much data and information as possible. As someone who's inclined toward that information, I know it doesn't serve me and my work has been coming away from it and getting more into my instinct and surrendering and trust. And we have to go back to low risk, healthy pregnancy with normal physiologic labor. The chances of these things happening are extremely small. It's position and inter- it's lack of being able to move your body throughout labor, the interventions of labor that can start to set off this cascade of problems, just as we discuss all the time. All right, let's move on to our next red flag. Non-medically indicated scheduled inductions. So why do we have non-medically indicated scheduled inductions most often? For the doctor's convenience. Big baby. 
Oh, big baby. Is that right? Baby. It's not because of due dates. Oh, well, that's and due late, dates. isn't it? It's oh, you're going, you're going past your due date. So we're afraid the baby's going to be too big. Exactly. It always comes back to the same thing. Your baby's measuring big. We should induce you now. Mm-hmm. First of all, we know, and this kind of links to the second one, the next thing on the list, which is about determining baby's size in late pregnancy, late trimester ultrasound is very inaccurate for determining baby's size. Even ACOG specifically states that the diagnosis of macrosomia or big baby is imprecise. It's off significantly and it's not an even bell curve distribution. So more likely you'll be told the baby is larger than the baby is. And there has been some really good meta-analysis published on this where they have found all these women who were told their babies were too big. And the conclusion of that meta-analysis, and I share all the details in my class, so I'm really familiar with it, is that um, a care provider's perception of a big baby is actually more dangerous than a big baby and results in far higher um, cesarean sections and far more inductions. And when all those, quote, big babies were born in that study that involved tens of thousands of women, the average weight of the baby was just under eight pounds because they just don't know. So you have women like me who walk around pregnant with really big babies. No one says anything. No one ever mentions that her babies look big and then they're born and they're big. But then you have the women where they're crowding around her and saying, the ultrasound says your baby is big. We need to induce you or schedule a C-section. And it's those decisions that result in more than quadruple the rate of adverse outcomes. And those ultrasounds only have a 60% sensitivity for accurately determining determining a technically big baby, which is 4,000 or 4,500 grams, 60%. 40% of the time, it will be wrong. My babies were, quote, macrosomic. They were 8, 14, and 9, 7. And I completely reject that term. I think it's an injustice. I don't think it's making birth any safer. I have a real problem with the term macrosomia. I never use it. I don't give it, I don't give it any validity whatsoever. And I certainly don't apply it to my own children. You know, the, the misinformation is the problem and that women start off uninformed with fear makes us a vulnerable population. So you add misinformation to that and there's, it's, we're not going to be heading the right direction. So I think the takeaway here, and this is what I usually tell my clients in class is just think twice before you get any late pregnancy ultrasound. It's not to say don't do it. It's just to say think twice because you're going to really want that ultrasound. Who isn't going to want to look at their baby and get all excited to see their baby? So you're going to be very willing to say yes. But if you get that late pregnancy ultrasound, you are very likely to be told the baby is too big or your fluid levels are too low. We won't get into that topic here today, but do it when it serves you. Do it when there's a reason to. Do it if you think you have a breech baby and it serves you to find out exactly the position of the placenta and cord in there. If you're just casually getting ultrasounds week by week in late pregnancy, you are very likely to be told at one of those ultrasounds that you need to be induced for one of these reasons. And they're, they're not linked to safer outcomes. It's really, what are they looking for in late pregnancy? If you know your baby's head down, you don't need an ultrasound to determine that. If your provider has any skill with their hands, they can determine that easily through your abdomen. You don't need to know where the cord is. Right. So what are we, what are we looking for in late pregnancy other than size and fluid levels? Right. What are we? Am I missing something? No, those are the two <laughs> things that result in a lot of scheduled C-sections and inductions. At my third pregnancy, I didn't have a single ultrasound, that one through the whole thing. 
Wow, that's amazing. You know, a skilled provider can palpate on the belly and even feel fluid levels. But Trisha, people don't, they're not so good at this anymore. Most providers can't even tell if a baby is head down anymore. Usually it's the older providers who can, but they've lost that skill because we used to touch women. And touch is love. I'm not talking vaginal exam touch. I'm talking like <laughs> some, touch is, some touch is too much and inappropriate or unwanted. I'm talking just a touch. Like research has shown just contact with another human being, a handshake, placing change in someone's hand and having physical contact, placing our hands on a woman to feel, to palpate, to say, oh, this feels just right. Oh, and there you go. Your baby is head down. There, there are benefits to that. Actually. A skilled provider who is good with their hands on the abdomen or their Leopold maneuvers and who puts their hands on mom's bellies all the time, their estimate of fetal weight is better than ultrasound. That's unbelievable. That's incredible. My midwife, my midwife mentor used to always, she used to always tell me in labor when we would get to a birth, she said, now put your hands on her belly, do your Leopold maneuvers, get your sense of this baby because then we were going to, the only way you can actually know the size of the baby, the only way, there's only one way, and that is to give birth and weigh the baby. Right. And then, so then we would do that and compare to my guesstimate through the Leopold maneuvers. And then that's how you get good at it. See, it's a dying art. It's a dying art. And it can't be, it mustn't be. And the reason we really don't know a baby's weight in utero is because we're on earth and we're, You're not you supposed know, to. weight is a function of gravity. And your baby is in water, which messes with gravity. So there's no way to know. It's just so much common sense. It's almost hard to, it's almost hard to believe it. But they're just these algorithms that they they plug in to guess, right? They're measuring the femur or whatever they're mm-hmm. entering, right? And mm-hmm. then they plug it into an algorithm and it mm-hmm. spits out a number and it looks very legitimate when that number shows up. But they really don't know what the baby weighs at all. Ultrasound is is notoriously poor at guessing fetal weight. And we don't need to know anyway, which is the big thing we keep forgetting in, in the greater, you know, in, in the, in the grand scheme, we keep forgetting. It doesn't serve us to know anyway. That is correct. It's not, it doesn't matter. All right. The next one actually kind of goes very much along with this non-medically indicated scheduled inductions that we talked about earlier. Um, which is to, if your provider treats your due date, like a hard, fast deadline run, (laughs) it's late to run, but run. So non-medically indicated scheduled inductions happen because of big babies and due dates, right? And the arrive trial, it, it was a study, a very large study that was done to determine if elective induction at 39 weeks improved outcomes for babies. So when we talk about inducing, we're really trying to reduce poor outcomes for baby, most notably stillbirth. Um, And the ARRIVE trial did not show any improvement in outcome for babies with elective induction at 39 weeks versus expected management or just a woman going into labor on her own. So this was monumental, this study, but because it had a very small a reduction in cesarean rate for moms who were induced at 39 weeks. A lot of providers are still sort of promoting this idea of being induced at 39 weeks. It's kind of like what Dr. Stu said on our podcast a couple of weeks ago about how we can look at numbers in aggregate and it's very compelling and it has nothing to do with the individual. So they can look right. at tens of thousands of women and say, well, let's induce because there is this slightly 
lower chance of a surgical birth, which is shocking to me. I don't understand that. And I really question that, honestly. Yeah, well, so do the, uh, so do the data analysts because there does, there is something. It's already in question. It is already all, in question. Yes. I'm happy to hear that yes. because it just, that is just not credible to me at all. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, expectant management shouldn't have a higher cesarean. Well, it, yeah, it, it has to do with the fact that the longer you are pregnant, the higher your rate of cesarean section, because the longer you're pregnant, the greater chance of developing hypertension that would require C-section or preeclampsia that would require C-section or too big a baby where your provider gets uncomfortable. But the other thing is that, okay, so the difference in cesarean rate was only, was the difference was 19% versus 22%. Now that's a statistically significant difference, but if you look at low risk birth, physiologic birth with midwifery led care, you have a cesarean rate on the high end of 15% and on the low end of 5%. So we're talking about inducing women at 39 weeks to lower the C-section rate from by 3% to 19% when you could go and have a midwifery led birth and reduce that number by twice as much or more. Yeah. If they were serious about maternal outcomes here, that would be the conclusion of the whole study. Exactly. Like by default, plan <laughs> right. to birth with a midwife until right. or unless you can't. So we're going to put women at risk of all the risks that come with induction just to potentially decrease the C-section rate by a small amount and ignore the fact that we can have a rate half that by giving birth with midwives. What also bothers me about these studies, though, is that they do feel inherently biased sometimes because it doesn't ever seem to include what happens with all those women with any of the side effects of Pitocin. That won't be included there. Nope. Nobody's, nobody's talking about the follow-up data on that. You know, how, so how if anyone women... ended up with a hysterectomy, if anyone ended up with some kind of um, postpartum hemorrhage, hemorrhage delayed right. breastfeeding. It's not um, in there. I can't tell you how many studies I've read where I jump to the conclusion first and then I have questions and I scroll up and I, I, and then I go up to the beginning and read the whole long study and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is completely not in alignment with that conclusion. They left this out. This is an important part, but it's almost like they know what conclusion they want and they get just enough cursory data to be able to get away with it, but they're leaving out really key information. Well, here's the I thing. Like they, an example of it. The outcome they expected with this study was that they were going to see a reduction in stillbirth. That was the main objective and they did not find that. So that's enough. That's enough right for there. me. <laughs> right. That could be the conclusion right there. So your, if your provider treats your due date as a hard and fast deadline and starts saying, you know, at 38 weeks, let's schedule your induction for 39 weeks, or by the time you hit your due date, you know, you get one, one more day and that's it for us. That's a red flag. Red flag. How many babies come on their due date? 4%. 4%. <laughs> How many come after? A lot. Hey there, all you amazing, strong, and beautiful women especially you new moms and moms-to-be. I'm Taylor, co-founder and CEO of Vitality. And I'm Taylor's sister, Chloe, co-founder and chief design officer. We started Vitality to encourage and empower everyone to live a vibrant life. We're all about supporting women, especially on the journey to motherhood. When I was pregnant, I really struggled to find comfy leggings that I could wear all day, every day. So we set out to make the best maternity pants out there. 
We took those pain points and designed pieces that were supportive and comfortable, including details like a high-rise fit, underbelly seam, raw cut hems, and to top it off, we have an embedded silicone panel that acts like a built-in suspension system for your low back, which is the first of its kind. So we designed this line in our Marshmallow Soft Cloud 2 fabric in not only a maternity pant, but a volley and biker short as well. Let me tell you, all of these pieces are a game changer. Just go to shopvitality.com. And cherry on top, you guys can use code DOWNTOBIRTH at checkout to get 10% off your order. 10% off athleisure designed for pregnancy during pregnancy. Down to Birth is sponsored by Postpartum Soothe. Recovering from a vaginal birth takes many women by surprise. Everyday activities like sitting, walking, and going to the bathroom can be uncomfortable. And Postpartum Soothe is just the remedy to support your healing and relieve discomfort. Postpartum Soothe is a 100% organic herbal blend that's applied to maternity pads in the days immediately following your birth, giving you all the benefits of a sits bath 24-7. That's because herbs like comfrey leaf, uva ursi, and witch hazel are known for their antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory properties. Postpartum Soothe can be prepared anytime during the third trimester, and it makes a beautiful baby gift. It's a must for any woman seeking a faster, easier recovery from a vaginal birth. Visit postpartumsoothe.com. That's postpartumsoothe, S-O-O-T-H-E dot com, and use promo code down to birth. Did you know that 97% of women take a prenatal vitamin, yet 95% of us are still deficient in key nutrients for pregnancy and postpartum? After a long time searching for the optimal prenatal nutrition product, we bring you Needed a radically better prenatal vitamin. Needed's nutritional products offer nutrients that your body can utilize with doses at optimal versus bare minimum levels and are available in capsules and an easy-to-take vanilla powder, perfect for those moms with pill fatigue or nausea. Needed is a woman-founded company offering a superior nutritional product lineup backed by research, data, and insights from nearly 4,000 women's health experts. Needed offers premium supplements for every stage, from egg quality support for women trying to conceive to lactation support for breastfeeding. And you know, Cynthia and I, we love their botanical sleep and relaxation support packets before bedtime. So if you are looking for a radically different prenatal, head on over to thisisneeded.com and enter down to birth for 20% off your first order. I always play around with my clients because I say in every class, it's usually the first day I'll say, all right, I want you to think about your due date and just tell yourself this fact. That's the day where there's a 96% chance my baby is definitely not coming because they're so confident the baby will come then. But it's laughable from the baby's perspective. A human baby is on time and in about a five-week window and we pick this one date. Usually it's much earlier than a first-time mom will even go into labor. So most of us have that anxiety that we see that due date come and go and we start to worry and we're more susceptible to unnecessary intervention because of that concern. I have always told my clients, when you get your due date, add a week and that is the day you tell people. So if your due date's October 1st, no, no, no. You tell your mother and your friends and everybody you know that your due date is October 8th. Especially your mother. (laughs) (laughs) In hypnobirthing, we say, tell people your due month. 
Yeah. We say sometime in October, or if your due date is October 1st, sometime between September and October. You know, people are going to press and be like, come on, what's the no, date? No, I got let's away with it. it. You did? I, you know, my second pregnancy, because it messed with me so much, my first, when everyone was asking, it really was a lot of stress for me. So the second time I took my own advice as a hypnobirthing instructor. And I never even uttered Vanessa's due date with my husband. I I didn't even want it in my brain. I only focused on weeks pregnant. So I looked at my 37 to 42 week mark and my mother in late pregnancy said, but just, just, just tell me like, when, when is the baby supposed to come? And I said, mom, (laughs) I don't know what to tell you other than sometime between Memorial day and the end of June. No one knows. So it's, it was empowering. It was fun Mm -hmm. and it was empowering. Yeah. I just went by weeks. For anyone out there who's pregnant right now, if you are a first-time mom, the average time for first babies to come is 40 plus four. All right. Okay. Next on the list, we have um, provider red flag, duration of labor comments, failure to progress. The number one reason for cesarean section in this country. Yes. So if your provider says anything, about how long your labor should take or how has an expectation around, you know, the length of first stage, second stage progression, how fast they want you to dilate. That is concerning. Yep. Remember what my doctor said to me, we want to see you dilated at least, at least a centimeter an hour Yes, as if it's linear. So where does that come from? Well, that is what obstetricians are trained to believe based on the data that was done in the fifties by you know, the Friedman, the Friedman curve, you know about that, um, that, you know, there was a set parameter and an actual curve developed that this is how, this is how labor is meant to progress. And I was even taught this in midwifery school in the two thousands, um, that if a woman does not achieve these benchmarks, then this is slow stalled labor and eventually failure to progress. And this is when you need to augment with Pitocin. And this is when you need to go to C-section. Fortunately, there was a huge study done in 2010 and these guidelines have finally been eliminated. And I think I read somewhere that Dr. Friedman is like in his nineties and he's still furious about it, that they have eliminated it <laughs> right before he dies. Yeah. He thought he'd go down a legend. <laughs> exactly. He says, this has been used for 60 years to de- and has hurt determine healthy, normal labor. All societies globally. Yeah. yeah well, he's going to keep rolling has- over in his grave after he's gone because nobody's paying attention to those parameters anymore. And of course, what the new information showed us is that labor takes longer than the Friedman curve. And that active labor used to be, it used to be that you were considered to be in active labor at the three to four centimeter mark. Now it's all the way to six centimeters. So it doesn't matter how long it takes you to get to six centimeters. You cannot be diagnosed with failure to progress if you have not been in labor, if your, if your cervix has not reached at least six centimeters dilated, then you're considered to be in active labor. And then there's some parameters around, you know, progress there, but still. Are there? Well, yes, I can read you specifically what the new guidelines say. Should we read them just so people know? And then we can there discuss gui- it. There's evidence-based guidelines. They're still trying to turn this into well, a science <laughs> as to yeah. how quickly a woman should dilate. Are you surprised? I mean, I'm disappointed. But <laughs> We're I- talking about hospital birth here. No, but I'm surprised an evidence-based provider like you would give merit to it. So are you saying it's evidence-based? I'm saying this is what women will face 
it, these are oh, the guidelines that different. they're going to face in the hospital. That I'm the, wondering what they are. This is what it, I'll read them. It says first stage labor arrest can only be diagnosed if a woman has reached six centimeters and her water has broken. Plus she has one of the following one. There has to have been no cervical change for four hours or more with adequate contractions or two, no cervical change with at least six or more hours of inadequate contractions with oxytocin augmentation. Notice they said oxytocin, not pitocin. I know the nerve, <laughs> but you know what I don't like? I don't like the word in- inadequate because who's to judge that? That's not something that a couple can measure. So if the doctor says that's inadequate, well, well this is the language they have always used. That for me. <laughs> we yeah. are, this is ACOG. This is ACOG. They, they should still know better. If the mother, if the mother is less than six centimeters dilated and she needs additional time and or interventions before arrest of labor can be a diagnosed, uh, because she is still in early labor. What a term, what a thing to say, arrest of labor. What a thing to say. They still want this to function like a science and not like an art. Well, this is why a woman shouldn't get vaginal exams in labor then. Because this whole thing about no cervical change, well, you know what? Get your hands out of there and no one's going to really know how much I've changed. The whole approach should just be make her comfortable, make her comfortable. The baby's on its way out. If there's no medical indication, the heart rate is fine. Leave her alone. That's not how it works in hospital birth, Well, then check out and go home. (laughs) I had a client once who checked into the hospital on a Friday night. Nothing was going on. She went home. The provider supported that. Went back Saturday in labor. Not much was going on after a few hours. She went home. She ended up going back on Sunday and having the baby Sunday. I love that story. I wish much far more people would do that. Me too. Um, I mean, fortunately, we have expanded. They have now expanded this definition of active labor to six centimeters. It used to be three or four centimeters. And that's why so many women were getting diagnosed with failure to progress because at three or four or five centimeters, you're not in active labor. Your body is, it could take a very, very long time to have any cervical change. So hopefully these new guidelines are going to reduce the number of diagnoses of failure to progress, which actually isn't even a term anymore. It's a rest of labor. Oh, that's even worse than failure to progress. I think that's even more alarming. I, yeah. I don't like the word arrest. Arrest is I don't like word, the word failure. Failure either. is horrible. That's I think, worse. I think arrest sounds. They're both bad. I think it sounds intimidating and scary. I think it's a, just a threatening term. Yeah, because it makes you think it's of handcuffs. Just, but language affects all of us differently. It just, I don't even know if I'm thinking of it like that. Arrest to me feels like the word, what it, what it, what's it, what it's supposed to mean. It feels like stopping. And to me, it, to me, it almost sounds like, well, what's stopping? Is the baby okay? Is the it, arrest of labor makes it sound like the baby is at risk. And that's very frightening to me. You're right. Language matters. So this is a good reason to decline vaginal exams in labor. <laughs> We welcome these situations sometimes. We raise our hands and say, sure, go ahead and do that. And then we get a problem on our hands. We open up a can of worms that are, it's hard to, it's hard to close back up. So it's often easier to say, no, there's no reason to do a vaginal exam. I'm good. As for privacy, get everyone to leave the room. If labor stalls and hypnobirthing, we say, we just focus on, in most evidence-based childbirth classes, it's going to be, well, let's make the mom more comfortable. Let's keep her relaxed and happy. Anyway. Yeah. I think the challenge sometimes comes in when a mom is trying to decide if she should have an intervention like Pitocin. And so then they want to do a vaginal exam. The, you know, I, as a provider, I can see the scenario. I've been there. It's, it's, well, do you want to try Pitocin? Well, I'm not sure. Well, we can check your cervix and see where you are. And if you haven't, 
if it hasn't changed at all in an hour or two, then maybe we decide to start the Pitocin. And that's right. how you get into doing vaginal exams. Um, but you could also alternatively say, let's give it an hour or two. And if I don't feel different and I don't feel my contractions have changed and I don't, you know, I'm not feeling the pressure of the baby in my bottom, then I'm just going to start the Pitocin. You don't have to have a vaginal exam. And all you have to do is say to yourself and your provider, what happens if I do nothing? That's the question you can always And then beware to. the rhetoric that follows. <laughs> right. And choose the right question. Like, is there any medical indication at the moment? How's the heart rate? How's my blood pressure? I don't have a fever, right? Right. No presence of meconium that we can see. I think we're good. I mean, you have to navigate it yourself, but that's the kind of conversation you could potentially have. All right. That's a tough one. Um, last one for third trimester. What I feel like we're doing to women is like you're halfway through labor. They're like mid-vaginal exam and they're going to hear our voices like, that's a red flag. you got to get out of there. <laughs> Run. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wait a second. I'm pretty sure this was a red flag. I hope we're not doing that. Well, hopefully we're giving people questions to think about for their prenatal visits, like if couples are listening to this. But but also, you know, we're giving them the scenarios that this is why in hospital birth, a third of women feel traumatized by their birth experience. Maybe these scenarios and what we're discussing is going to help you choose an out-of-hospital birth or a birth center birth or a, a midwife-led birth, even though this can happen in a, in a midwife-led birth in a hospital too. I mean, there is in a hospital birth, there are going to be, you're going to run into these red flags more. There's just no way around it. Yeah. I'm, it, it's not to say every obstetrician will be that way. It's just your work to find out if you're with one of them. There are great obstetricians that wouldn't do any of this. And there are many midwives who would not do this. And there are midwives who would. Absolutely. It's not so, you know, it's just not that black and white. That's it's not the problem. I tell my clients, if you're throwing darts and you want um, a low or no intervention birth and you want a natural birth and you're throwing darts, then sure, like go for a midwife. But your work is nowhere near done. You really have to get to know every provider to know if you're aligned. And it's not to say that some obstetricians and, out there aren't going to be more hands-off than certain midwives. You, that's you definitely know. true. Yes, mm -hmm. totally. But first you have to know your own birth preferences, right? Right, Yeah. So what do we have left? Okay. The last one we have for third trimester red flags is a provider who expects you to birth on your back, who tells you that that is the only position they can deliver your baby in. So even the ACOG no longer says that, fortunately. Since 2017, even the ACOG, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, I always say it, but because, you know, if it's their first time listening to the episode. The ACOG. The even ACOG. I know the ACOG. I have this, I have this funny way of saying things sometimes, don't I? Just getting it like just a little bit off. Like, Remember the time I said like an obstetric school instead of yeah, medical school? Yeah. Everyone thought it was funny. Um, even if, well, it is the American. It, yes. It that's why you American say it that college. way. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, but even they say no one position should be prescribed. So they're using their soft language so as not to be too hard on all their doctors. But they're saying they're, they're far, there are good outcomes when women choose their own positions. But the truth is being on your back is a fast path to fetal distress. And it prevents the pelvis from opening up about 30%. So you want to get off of your sacrum. And mainly you want to be comfortable and choose your own position. 
It's not a big deal. You don't have to get permission to do this. You can flip over on your hands and knees on the bed. You can stand with your feet on the floor and lean with your palms on the mattress and lean against the bed. You, you can't, you have no liability. You can't get in trouble. There's nothing you can do wrong in that space. Oh no, you're, and it is their job to support you. And your provider needs to catch your baby wherever you're birthing it from, whether that's on the toilet, whether that's standing in the bed, whether that's squatting on the floor, whether that's, that's right. hands and knees, wherever, leaning, doesn't matter. I mean, you do not have to birth in the position that is convenient for them. You being on your back is convenient for them. That's the only benefit. Yeah. And if you are having a natural birth, one of the advantages of feeling everything and experiencing everything is your body and your baby will guide you into the optimal position. So you just have to listen to your body and then go into that position. To listen to any prescribed position would be to deny yourself one of the benefits of a natural birth and a safer birth outcome. Now, I will say there are women who choose to be on their back for birth because they're tired, they maybe are on their side, then they roll onto their back. I mean, sometimes it is the position that just feels best to the mom. Mm -hmm. So there's, it's, it's not like it's a forbidden position. It's just that this is the position on your back, legs up is the position that has been classically portrayed in hospital birth. And it is not to be forced into that position is not good for you or your baby. But if you find yourself naturally in that position, then it's working for you. Mm -hmm. That's true. That's a good point. Um, so Trisha, you know what's going to happen as soon as we're done recording today, right? We're going to think of another red flag. Yes, I'm sure that will happen. Of course it will. <laughs> if not several. You know what that makes me think of? It makes me think of the one of the best-selling books in the world, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And that book sold like a millions and millions of copies. Mm -hmm. And then he came out with another book, The Eighth Habit. I'm like, oh, no, you don't. <laughs> nope, you have your chance. There are seven habits. <laughs> you don't get to do that. But what was the missing eighth one? P.S. The Eighth Habit. I don't know. Uh -huh. I refused on principle. Oh, I was really? like, nope, you had your chance. I read your book. <laughs> nope. <laughs> what if it was the best one of all? <laughs> I, I can't do it. Yeah, imagine if it's like the secret of them all. Mm-hmm. And I'm missing out. Well, we might just come back in next week's episode or our next Q&A with another red flag because we can't stop talking about them. Well, we'll see. Uh, yeah, there are infinite, really. So we, I just want to remind everyone, we had a wonderful episode with Barbara Harper of Waterbirth International. Um, I believe, was that episode 122? Do I have yes. that gift where I can just, is it really? I believe it is. Wow. Mm. Isn't that, isn't that great? Should I no imagine if I'm all wrong. <laughs> you should, because I, well, before I start bragging about how well I remember episode numbers, <laughs> everyone's going to say she was wrong. Anyway, I, Barbara Harper did a great episode with us. So if you want the positive spin on this and what you are looking for, please listen to that wonderful episode. It will inspire you. It'll probably bring tears to your eyes. And, um, and you'll just get so much out of it from a, a more positive perspective. But this is valuable too, we know, because it gives you specific things to be alert to. And we know your intuition is going to do its job at you know guiding you to the right provider. So with that... So a couple of people have reached out and said that they've experienced some of these red flags and have asked the question, so do I now leave my provider? How do we answer that? I think there are some of these red flags that are grounds for leaving your provider, but you don't have to leave your provider if they're late to one or two appointments. 
Yeah. This is what I tell people when they ask me that. This is what I say. It's kind of like if you have a close friend or oh, certainly over the years of having friendships, you've seen friends go through boyfriends or relationships where they get to a point where they're not sure if they should stay. It's not any different from what I would tell that friend. If you're not ready to take action yet, just keep observing. Just keep observing. Get yourself into observation mode. So if you say, oh, there's a little red flag, you don't have to take, we're not here to say that means what to do. If we do say that, we're we're kind of kidding sometimes about it because it's really your decision and we don't know what options you have. But do be aware. That's what mindfulness is. You might soon enough observe that your intuition is starting to say, I'm not comfortable with this person anymore. I've, I've observed too much now. So you don't have to make a decision or put any kind of pressure on yourself. I mean, if, a per, if for me personally, if a provider said you can only give birth on your back and I'm going to mandate an induction at or require you to be induced at 39 weeks, I don't need any more red flags than that. Right? Right. Right. But if they say, we let's do a vaginal exam for good measure at your 39 or 38 week appointment, and you say, no, I'll pass, you don't have to leave them because they suggested it. That's right. Um, if they say you don't have a choice, then that is a very strong red flag. <laughs> I'm not going to be shy about saying it because you always have a choice. Like that's a really hard one. If they ever say you don't have a choice. I personally would say, and I've had clients who've had to change after 40 weeks, I would say, let's do whatever we can um, to scramble to get to someone who is going to treat you with more respect than that, because that's just false. It's a very intimidating situation as well, but it's very unethical. So yeah, there not every flag is an equal shade of red. <laughs> yeah. So having these conversations along the way, this is why developing your birth plan early on and developing it with your provider is really important. Because the sooner you're having these discussions in pregnancy, the sooner you're going to know. Yeah, we can just come back to one of our favorite ones, which is just see how you feel when you're showing up to the appointment and then compare that to how you feel when you leave and see if you felt better after having engaged with that provider or not. So thank you for participating by listening to these Red Flag episodes. This is the third in our three-part series. The first one came out in August with our first trimester Red Flags. What number was September. it? Yeah, what number was it? What number? What? Oh, I don't know. I'm not that good. If you enjoyed our podcast, please take a moment to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share a favorite episode or two. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at DownToBirthShow or contact us and review show notes at DownToBirthShow.com. Please remember this information is made available to you for educational and informational purposes only. It is in no way a substitute for medical advice. For our full disclaimer, visit DownToBirthShow.com slash disclaimer. Thanks for tuning in. And as always... Hear everyone and listen to yourself. Oh my God, let me think about it. Maybe it'll just come to me. 96. No, it'll be, it'll be like, um, let me think about it. 118. Let's see. It was an even number. Too. Yes, it is. 118. Yes. <laughs> and how about second trimester yes. with flags? How do we put this skill to better use? <laughs> My finance background is popping up everywhere. Those numbers stick in your head. I'm kidding. That's not finance. Those are just numbers. Well, numbers. Yeah, that's not what finance is. But what were you saying? It has a lot to do with numbers. It has to do with money numbers, mostly. I'm quizzing you on second trimester. Red flags. Come oh on. Oh, my gosh. Go three for oh three. God, this is what I get for bragging. Second trimester red flags. The first was 118. Let me think. 120. 
three, four, or five. <laughs> you're, you're in the ballpark. <laughs> I am. It's one twenty-four. One twenty-four. Yeah, that's that's why I picked the one before and after it in case I was wrong. I should have just said it. <laughs>